have your Bibles, please go with me to uh, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. You and me, we're a lot alike. We both have jobs. Now, your job, you might be a manager of some kind. You might be the owner of something. Um, you might be an entrepreneur or a stay-at-home mom. Uh, you might be in retail or in marketing. You might be uh, working from your kitchen table or maybe from a cubicle. You might be working out in the sun. You might work in a classroom. Maybe you have some sort of co-working space where you just share sort of this large room with other people. Maybe your office is a coffee shop or maybe you have a corner office. Um, whether you're a student or whether you're in training or sort of like the resident expert in whatever you're doing, um, you have a job that God has given you in this season. And um, what, what we see in the text of the Bible is that the, the Bible actually has a lot to say to you in whatever God has called you to do in terms of work uh, in this season. That the, the life-transforming teaching of the Bible about work um, is is going to offer a lot of help to you no matter where you work or what you do when you work. And this teaching is actually going to come from a surprising place. Uh, in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, we see that the Bible talks to two groups of people. It talks to slaves and it talks to masters. Um, this, this is uh, a passage that has caused people all sorts of issues and all sorts of confusion has been used and abused uh, in all sorts of ways throughout history. Um, what we're going to see, though, in the, in the text, though, is, is that this passage really transforms our relationships, our work relationships, whether we are a boss or whether we're uh, an employee, whether we're an owner or whether we simply are a part of an organization, whether we are uh, just sort of self-employed or we're part of a large company, that the, the gospel changes how you approach your job, whatever your job might be. So we, we need to do kind of like four things this morning. We need to look at the context of this passage. Then we need to talk a little bit about some of the questions that will arise when we look at it about slavery and then we're going to see that this passage will tr transform and revolutionize and, and, and help you in your work from Monday through Saturday. Um, the context of the passage is, is that it's coming toward the end of the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians was not uh, originally just a book that was written. It was actually uh, a letter that... Paul the Apostle, a man who served God in the first century in the Roman Empire, and he went by, on foot, sometimes by boat, through the Roman Empire, telling people about Jesus. And he would go into a city. He would go, like, pull up into Fort Lauderdale, or pull up into West Palm Beach, or pull up into Orlando, and he would find a synagogue, and he would find a place uh, to tell people about Jesus. And people would hear the message of Jesus, and they would be transformed, and they would be saved, and then they would be gathered together in these little communities called churches. And usually those churches met in someone's home. Usually they met in a house because there was not always a place to meet, although when he planted the church in Ephesus, they actually sort of rented out a lecture hall, the lecture hall of Tyrannus we see in the book of Acts, sort of like we're renting out and we're partnering with Trinity Church to, to rent this room. And he, he planted this church, and then about seven years later, 
he has found himself in prison because of his ministry of the gospel. And he's writing this letter to this church, to this group of people that he loves to help them in their walk with Jesus. The first three chapters of the letter are all about what God has done for us. They're all about the gospel. They're all about the fact that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to be crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven and given new life. And that this gospel changes us in our spiritual life. It changes us in our relationship with God, but it also transforms our relationships with other people. In Ephesians 2, it says he broke down the dividing wall of hostility, brought together Jews and Greeks. In our world, it means he brings together black people and white people and rich people and poor people and old people and young people and liberal people and conservative people. And he brings us together under something bigger than any of those identity markers. And that is under the cross of Christ. And the gospel has changed things in the world. It's changed things in individual lives. And then we see he pivots in chapter 4, verse 1. And there's an important word in chapter 4, verse 1. The word is therefore. Therefore is, the, is this hinge where Paul is saying, I'm going I'm to stop talking so much about what God has done, and now I'm going to start talking about what you need to do. What should your response be to what God has done? And he gives all sorts of applications and implications of the gospel and of what God has done. And one of those is in chapter 5, verse 15, where he says, walk or live your life in wisdom. And then in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, be filled by the Spirit. And one of the ways we're filled by the Spirit is by submitting to one another in love, in the fear of Christ. And after that, he transitions into talking about household relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, and then slaves and masters. In the, you see, in the, the ancient Roman world, the, 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 the primary unit of human society was what was called the household, or the Greek word is oikos. Um, it's where we get the word economy, by the way, just a side note. Um, and, and the oikos, or the household, was this cluster of relationships. There was the, the father and then the, the wife and then the children, but then there were also the slaves and the servants and all sorts of people who were involved in this household. It was like a sort of like a mini little compound where people lived and worked and, 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 and their life happened in, in the household. And Paul is saying the, the gospel transforms every relationship under that roof. The relationships between husbands and wives, the relationships between parents and kids, and the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, what we see is that the gospel here is subtly subverting or overturning the established way and the sinful way that people were enslaved and oppressed in the ancient world and unfortunately still in, in different ways to the present day. And what, what, what it's doing, though, is it's doing this in a way that's not always obvious. It's sort of like Spider-Man. So Spider-Man, you've got this normal teenage kid, Peter Parker, and he gets bit by a spider that's gotten caught up in this, tractor, this radiation beam, and somehow he's been sort of infused in some weird, mysterious way with the powers of a spider, and he can walk up walls, and he's super strong, and uh, and, and all these things, and, and, and 
But when you see him, you don't see that. You don't see his superpowers. He just looks like an average and normal kid. And that's sort of what the gospel does in our lives. We may not look that different, but underneath the seeming sameness, there is this radical transformation and this power that is at work within us and in our relationships. So let's read this passage of the Bible and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig into it. Uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from the heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray. God, would you speak to us? This is your word. And we're, we just want to be open to your word. So I pray that you would impress your word upon us, press it into us, just massage it into our souls so that we're changed. I pray that you would just help me to speak truthfully about your word, to not say anything I don't need to say. And you know I've prepared notes and I've studied and written things down, but maybe there's some things in there that I don't need to say. And I pray your spirit would have freedom to edit me out. And maybe there's some things in there that I need to say that that I didn't think to write down, but I pray your spirit would just help me. Uh, And you would help uh, those who listen to have that same attentiveness as we look at this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you read this passage and you might be asking, how in the world can you say that the Bible transforms our lives? Because it sure looks like the Bible's condoning slavery. Slaves obey your masters. And and if you know anyone, or maybe you yourself are skeptical about the Bible, this will be one of the first questions that gets asked. One of the first ones is about always about sexual ethics, and then another question is going to rise about slavery. Well, doesn't the Bible promote slavery? Well, as we, we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see that the Bible is like Peter Parker-level subversion of slavery. It may look like it's just condoning it on the surface, but when we actually get into the text, we're seeing, we're going to see that it's going to come in and it's going to set people free. And that's what it has done for thousands of years. So what we need to do is we just need to take a a few minutes before we get into what this passage means and and how it applies to us. And we need to talk about two questions. We need to talk about the question of slavery in the Bible. And then we need to spend just a little bit of time talking about the reality of slavery in American history because we can't approach this passage without addressing that elephant in the room. So the question about slavery in the Bible, the first thing to know is that ancient slavery was different than slavery was in America. Um, Ancient slavery was not a good thing by any means. 
but it was not the same as slavery was in the United States and in Western uh, and in England and in, in the second part of, you know, the, the last half of like from the 1500s on. First of all, it wasn't based on racism and race. It wasn't just one group of people based on their color of skin that was subjected to slavery. All sorts of different people were slaves in the ancient world. Another thing is in the ancient world, people could, earn, could often earn uh, a wage and purchase their freedom. And they could become free even though they had been enslaved. And they could sell themselves into freedom and repurchase their freedom sometimes. And often slaves were well-educated. They, they were not um, subjected to just manual labors. Oftentimes they were like managers of households and, and received the, some of the, the best schooling and tutoring because they had to accomplish high-level tasks. So, so don't hear me wrong that slavery in the ancient world was like awesome. It was often horrific and abusive, but it was very different than what we think of when we think of slavery, which is uh, the chattel or sales-based slavery of a single race based on racism in the American uh, story from just the last few hundred years. It, it was different then than, than, than American slavery was. Uh, the second thing to note is that the Bible overturns ancient patterns of slavery. Uh, not just here, but elsewhere. So look at, look at the Bible's teaching overturned patterns of slavery. Look at this next passage here. We know that the law is not meant for, right, for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for slave traders. For slave traders. A slave trader was considered an unrighteous and rebellious person. Someone who bought and sold human beings was considered a wicked person. And the Bible says that. Look at this next verse. 1 Corinthians 7, 22, for he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freed man. But then look at this. He who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. So what it's doing there is saying your status, whether you're free or enslaved, is not the defining factor. But what Jesus does is he comes in and he says, you think you're free? Well, you're actually my slave. And he goes to the slave and says, you know you're slave? Well, you're actually free in me. The Bible overturns Patterns of slavery in the ancient world. There is a big M master. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor, slave or free, white or black, old or young, Republican or Democrat. He only cares if you follow him and worship him and trust him. He doesn't care about where you are nearly so much as he cares about who you are and whose you are. Another thing is that it's in our passage here in Ephesians 6 is something radical is happening. That Paul is actually talking to slaves directly. You see, there would have been all these people together, and there would have been all, all this diverse group of people, and there would have been slaves and masters sitting to, you know, in the same room as equals under the cross. And Paul is giving them a word directly to them, not through their masters, but from God. A third thing to notice and to know about the Bible and slavery is that Christians in history have worked to overturn slavery. There was a theologian and pastor in the 300s, that's a long time ago, named uh, Gregory, 
uh, and he said that uh, a, a man is free and autonomous and has been created for freedom. And he says, you who are trying to enslave him are perverting the natural order. Man was created as Lord over the earth, and you have put him under the yoke of servitude as a transgressor and a rebel against the divine precepts. So what he's saying there is that slavery is not the natural intention of God's creation. It is unnatural. As much as sexual deviation is unnatural, slavery is unnatural. It is contrary to what God intended for the world when he made it. A more famous story is the story of John Newton. You know the story of John Newton. He, he was the captain of a ship that would go to the coast of Africa and it would put all of these African people, these black African people onto the ship, packing them in like cargo and, and sailing up the coast up to England for sale to people who could afford them. And John Newton met Jesus and he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And he talked about his former life. And he said in that song that he was a wretch. That a slave captain was a wretch. He was lost. But then Jesus came and now he is found. He was blind, but now I see. You know, you know the hymn. And he says when Jesus comes in, he changes things. And John Newton went from being a slave cap ship captain to a pastor. And one of the people he pastored was a guy named William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce was uh, fairly wealthy and fairly um, connected in society, and he was a part of the British Parliament. And he worked with a, another, a small group of people to, uh, to overturn and outlaw the slave trade in Britain. He was a committed Christian who believed the Bible. And his commitment as a Christian led him to make slavery illegal. And he worked his whole life until he finally accomplished it because he loved Jesus and because he believed the Bible. The only way slavery can be justified by the Scripture is by the abuse of the Scripture. And that's what happened, we're going to see, in the reality of, of slavery and the American story and American history. You can't talk about this issue in the Bible without talking about the, the stain on our national story, and that is the stain of slavery. For first colonists got to America in 1607. The first slaves were brought to America in 1619. And slavery was the law of the land until 1863 when Abraham Lincoln gave an emancipation proclamation. That's 250 years of slavery. Slaves were freed, but then, it's a long story of what happened, but, but there began to be a, a systematic oppression of blacks in the American South through a system of, of unjust laws called Jim Crow. And Jim Crow laws were, were really uh, held sway for, from the 1870s until the 1960s, and that's where you got Martin Luther King Jr. and, the, and the, all those in the civil rights movement to overturn the law, Jim Crow laws and segregation and all that in the, in the American South. So here, check this out. This is the American story. 16, early 1600s until 1960s, you had slavery and then Jim Crow. That is 350 years out of 400 of our American story. That's a lot 
That's a big percentage. Like, I'm 38 years old. And if I were America, slavery would have been outlawed when I was 23. That's not that long ago. And Jim Crow would have been ended when I was 33. That's like two out of my three kids were already here. So this is, this is a part of our story that has lingering consequences into the present day. Shortly after the end of Jim Crow in the civil rights era, abortion was legalized. So, so I, and, and abortion is genetically connected to racism, Jim Crow, and to slavery because, anyway, that's a whole other story. We, we have to wrestle with this as American Christians because slave masters loved Ephesians 6.5. Slaves, obey your masters. They would use that verse to, sub, to, to subordinate their slaves, to abuse their slaves. They abused that verse because they ignored, they rebelled against, and they never told the slaves about Ephesians 6, 9. The same passage where it says, masters, treat your slaves the same way. They never, they never got to the part where the masters are supposed to be so servant-hearted to the slaves that the slaves feel like they got the better end of the deal. They never got to that part. They just abused the slaves and used them as their personal property. There's a slave master's Bible in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and it only has 232 out of the 1,189 chapters because anything that possibly could have led to a slave wanting to be more educated or free was removed. And so that means you got to take 80% of the Bible out and be very selective in what you let someone read. Slavery is a stain on our story. And this is why, this is why it has been said, rightly so, that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. You got people separated, and now even if it's not legalized, it's sort of self-selective, and people, they cluster together with people who are like them. We don't want that to be the story of Cross United Church. We don't want that to be the story in South Florida. We want to be a multi-ethnic church. We want to have diverse relationships because the, the same gospel that brings us to God brings us together. The same gospel that reconciles us to God reconciles us to one another. And just like this passage began to transform relationships in the ancient world, it's also got a lot to say about your life here and now and in your workplace. So let's, all that is leading into this implication. How does this change your day-to-day -day life? How does this change your Monday, not just your Sunday? The, the way this passage changes your work and your workplace, we see that it had radical implications for slavery in the ancient world, and it has radical implications for you in 2019 in South Florida. First, work for Jesus, first of all. It says, slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling, but it doesn't just say that. It says, as you would Christ. As you would Christ. If Paul can say that to these slaves in the household church of Ephesus, how much more so does it apply to you? That no matter who your boss is or your supervisor is or what 
What's, what's happening in, in your workplace that you should be a servant-hearted person because you're working for Jesus. You're not working for whoever your supervisor is or whoever the organization is. You're not working for, you're not even, if you're self-employed, you're not working for yourself. If you're in government, you're not working for the government. You are working for Jesus. He has put you where you are. I remember um, when I was in grad school, I got a job at Starbucks. And um, I don't know if anyone in here, anyone else has been in food service, but there is no job, I think, in our society where people treat you worse than food service. It's like, it's like there's something that happens when there's like a counter between you and you're supposed to be serving them food. And they, not everyone, not even most of everyone, but there are some people, it's like you are not a person anymore. You are a means to them getting their coffee. And in food service, I, I bristled at people treating me like I was there to serve them until I realized that I was there to serve them. And I was in grad school, and I was in seminary getting my master's degree in, in ministry and theology so that I could become a pastor. And I'm like, I can't even serve someone coffee without a bad attitude. How am I going to be a professional servant like Jesus came not to be served but to serve? No matter where you are, no matter where God has put you, you are there and you are serving not your boss, you're not serving your constituencies, you are, not, you are serving Christ, first of all. Secondly, work with integrity. Work with integrity. Look what he says in verse 6. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. You should be like the resident Boy Scout or Girl Scout of your workplace. People should know that this person, this person is straight and narrow. They don't cheat. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't fudge. They don't cut corners. They are the best worker here. They may not be the smartest. They may not be the most favored, but they are always working as hard as they can. Not just when other people are around. When I was a kid, used to old reruns of Leave It to Beaver used to come on. I don't know if you remember Leave It to Beaver and Eddie Haskell, right? The guy who's always like causing trouble. And then when the parents are around, well, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver. And he's like one way and one way, when, depending on when the authority is watching. Not as a way of people pleasing. You're working your tail off when people aren't watching. You are doing your best because God has called you to that place. There's a story of Steve Jobs when they built the first Macintosh computer in the 80s. And um, legendary, uh, legendary um, core value for Apple was making everything great, even the parts people couldn't see. Um, and the story goes that, that the first Macintosh, everybody signed the inside of the case where no one could see it because it was beautiful, not just where people could see it, but where people couldn't see it because it was done well 
because that's how you should do things. How much more so should we be doing the things people can't see with the utmost excellence, the utmost integrity, the utmost honesty, working from faith, not from fear? King Saul, I'm reading my Bible reading plan, the F260 plan that some of us are reading through um, together, um, and, and I'm reading in 1 Samuel, and I see this part where King Saul gets uh, the call from God to go um, and to, to, to attack the enemies of the people of God, and he doesn't do things quite the way God told him to, and the kingdom is taken away from him. And, and what he says there is, I'm sorry, because I, and he says, I listened and obeyed the voice of the people rather than the command of the Lord. He was leading from fear rather than faith. He was working from fear rather than faith. Your boss, your supervisor, your company, if you're self-employed, you yourself, you are not in ultimate control of your destiny. The Lord is in control. The Lord controls the destiny of where you are in this season and where you may be in the next. Third, worship while you work. Worship while you work. Verse 7, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Literally, the word here for good attitude can be translated wholehearted. Now, this resonated with me because one of our values as a church is wholehearted worship. We believe life like God intended happens when we are connected to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, connected to each other in authentic community, and sent out on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world. Wholehearted worship, authentic community, joyful mission. I need to, I'm just going to say these over and over because I want, I want everyone to remember this is what we're about. Wholehearted worship, authentic community, joyful mission. And at the intersection of those is abundant life, Jesus promised in John 10.10. 10. Here, though, it's notice it says, serve with a good attitude, serve wholeheartedly. You can never get confused to think that worship is what happens only on Sunday. Wholehearted worship is not just what we do from 11.35 to 11.50 when we're singing together. Wholehearted worship is not about you singing worship songs in your car as you're driving. It is. That is part of it. But wholehearted worship doesn't just happen when you're singing to the Lord or pouring out your heart in prayer. It happens when you are doing things to honor Him. Wholehearted worship is the opportunity you have for wholehearted worship is on Monday morning as much as Sunday morning. We believe wholehearted worship flows from worship on Sunday, but it also flows to a life of worship Monday through Saturday. That your, your, your worship, you should worship while you work. So, I mean, I know what some of you do. I don't know what all of you do during your days. If you're making a phone call, God, this is for you. You're having a client meeting. God, this is for you. You're doing something around the house because you're, you, you're home a lot of the day for whatever reason. You're taking out the trash. You're washing dishes or you're changing a diaper. God, this is for you. You're grading papers. God, this is for you. Taking a lunch order, serving someone coffee. God, this is for you. This is an act of worship. 
I am open-handedly offering this to you as my praise because I am serving you while I do this. Fourth, look to the Lord more than your job for provision and fulfillment. Oh man, this is hard. This is hard. We are so bound up in what we do. And we identify that with who we are. And we think, that's how I get my, that's how I win the bread, you know, breadwinner. What does breadwinner mean? It means you go out and you win rather than lose and you get bread, right? You get sustenance and provision. You make money to buy bread. But you know, your, your paycheck doesn't provide for you. God provides for you through your paycheck. A job well done doesn't fulfill you. God fulfills you through allowing you to do a job well done and designing you in such a way that you're able to get things done. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Your job is not your identity. I was listening to a sermon from... um, uh, someone who was a professor in my seminary when I was there, and, and he, the sermon was basically just, you are not your gift. Your job is not your identity. That's not all of who you are. Your success at work, your stress at work doesn't define you. Your job doesn't ultimately provide for you. God provides for you. Your job can never fulfill you. Only God can fulfill you. God cares more about your motivation than your current situation. He cares more about you honoring Him. He cares more about who you are than where you are. He cares more about what you're doing than where you're doing it. Maybe you're not in the season you want to be in right now. Maybe you're wishing there was something different for you in this season. God has you right where He wants you, and it's for a purpose. He cares more about your investment in his purposes than your job opportunities. And he will provide for you, and he will fulfill you. And sometimes he'll do that through your job, and a lot of times he'll do that by just knowing that he's enough. Fifth, serve those you lead. Serve those you lead. Some of you may be in positions of official leadership. Others of you may be in positions of unofficial leadership, but people look to you to lead in some way. Masters, verse 9, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Again, I already mentioned that this is a radically shocking verse in the ancient world and today. It almost, you almost, you read all that the slaves are supposed to do, serve you know, work hard for the Lord, wholehearted, all that, integrity. And then it says, masters do the same for them. Be such a good master that the slave is like, I wouldn't want to be free because this is awesome. That's almost like, almost like you could get that sense that, that if, a, if a master is truly following Jesus and leading like Jesus, it's like he is just focused on serving those he's leading. Just think what it's like to be a slave of Christ. 
Who gets the better end of that deal? Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, outlines a number of factors for organizations that succeed. This was a number of years ago. But one of the things he talks about is level five leadership. And he went into all of these organizations, and he found that every single one of them had someone at the helm who was incredibly ambitious, incredibly diligent and hardworking, but who was profoundly humble. Humble doesn't mean self-effacing, like they didn't try to get work done, but humble meant the cause was not about them. It was about something bigger. And people can see that. They can see if you're there for you or you're there for something bigger. If you're there to serve the purpose and the mission of where you're at or if you're there just to collect a paycheck. They can see if you're there for yourself or if you're there for something that is bigger than you. Ultimately, as a Christian, the biggest thing you could ever have as the big thing, and that is God himself. Do those who work with you know that, you know what, they're not here for themselves. They're not all about themselves. They serve. They don't, they don't try to beat people down and ladder climb. They, they work hard and they're ambitious, but there's something so appealing about their humility. And they say, why are you like this at work? How can you be this way? And, they, and you say, it's because I'm not here for me. I'm here for something much bigger than me. And they say, oh, you're here for the mission of the company. Well, sort of, but I'm here for the mission of God in the world. That's why I'm such a good worker. That's why, I'm such, that's why everybody wants me on their team when, when, when there's opportunities. That's why I get selected for committees. and I get Because I'm here for something bigger, not just the, even the bigness of what we're doing, but the bigness of what God is doing. Do people know that you're second after Jesus? But you're not just second after Jesus. You're actually third because Jesus is first, then them, and then you. There's a pastor I've followed and listened to um, for years who, uh, in, in the last few years, he had planted a church that had grown and, beca- and had grown to like thousands of people. It's not here locally. Many of you pro- might not even know if I said his name. And he ended up being removed from the church by his board of elders. And the reason he was removed was not because of sexual immorality or, or you know, financial impropriety or, or some of those things that are kind of like, we hear about more often, he was removed for being a domineering leader. He was removed because he was a dictator, and it was his vision, his mission, his way or the highway. And the elders came alongside of him and said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Look at the pattern of biblical leadership. And, and they didn't feel like there was enough change, and, and he, was in, he ended up being removed from his church. And recently, I listened to a sermon by, by this guy, and he talks about what it was like for him. He talked about a lot of things, but one of the things he said was, I would never have said this, but I believe deep in my heart that every person in that church was there to serve me. Every person was there to serve my ambition, my desire for a big church, for influence, for platform, for impact, whatever it was, they were there to serve me. And it cost him. 
The good news is God restored him and brought him to a place of health, and he can do the same for you. Because if you're where you are in your work and you're there for you, it will fall apart eventually. But if you are there to serve the Lord, if you are there because God has placed you there and you're there to serve his purpose in that place, in this moment, in this season of your life, God will bless you far beyond all that you can ask or imagine. Because we believe in a God who sent his son not to be served, but to serve and to 